so like I said, we're going to go through the text and uh, sort of put some color to that. So I want you to jump in with me at verse 1. We're going to start there at verse 1. And I, I want to just stop halfway through 1. So it says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem. Sounds on the face of it like a pretty innocuous phrase, not a lot there. But, but there's a lot that Matthew's talked about up to this point that, that power packs a couple of those words. We're going to look at that here in just a second. So press pause for a few minutes on just that phrase, verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 3, verse 2. Matthew 3, verse 2. We're going to start there. That phrase, draw near, is a, is a verb that's used in a few different places in Matthew. And the first one is Matthew 3, verse 2. It develops throughout his book. And uh, we're going to see some of that here. Matthew 3, 2. This is super cool stuff. Matthew 21 starts, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, in Matthew 3, 2, it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When it says at hand, that's that word, drew near. It's the same exact verb, in fact. At hand, drew near, same exact word. And it's used there at the beginning of Matthew when uh, the kingdom is announced. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's drawing near. It's coming. So Matthew uses that in 3, 2. Look uh, in Matthew 4, 17. Verse 17 of Matthew 4. I want you to, to look at this with me as it develops through Scripture. Matthew 4, verse 17. This is when Jesus begins to preach about the kingdom. He's beginning to announce his coming of the kingdom. It says in 4.17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, and there's that phrase again, at hand. It's drawing near. It's nigh. It's almost here. Same exact word as used in Matthew 21. Turn with me to Matthew 10. This is when the disciples are sent out on mission. This is when they're sent out on mission. They're told, this is why you exist on this planet in the first place. Matthew 10, uh, verse 7. Matthew 10, verse 7. This is Jesus giving them instructions. Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is, here's that phrase again, at hand. Same exact word, same exact verb, at hand, is the same word as drew near. So, so when we get to Matthew 21, verse 1, it's not by accident that he uses that same exact word. He says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem. He's giving a hint to the reader. Those of you who have been following me in this, this gospel I've been telling in Matthew, at this point in 21, this phrase should, should ring a bell for you. It should ring a bell of the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is at hand. And Matthew uses it on purpose as a trigger to the reader. In James 4, 8, Jesus' brother, uh, James, uses an Old Testament phrase. It's draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Same exact word that's used here in Matthew. And James is picking up about four different Old Testament scriptures uh, that are used to say that same exact kind of thing. And so James and Matthew are, are picking this up from this Old Testament tradition. And they're saying, this day, this Sunday, Jesus coming is a drawing near. We also know, we also know, if you want to couple this idea of drawing near with the fact that this is Passover, we also know that this is Passover from the other Gospels. Matthew 21 here, uh, if you'll remember from the reading, it doesn't explicitly say, hey, it's Passover. But, but we know that from the other Gospels. And so what Matthew is doing is he's saying, kingdom of heaven's at, at hand, it's near, it's coming, and it's also 
Passover, and he puts these two together, connects these two events to say the kingdom of God is coming at Passover. Don't miss this because it's, it's huge. It's huge that this would be happening here. And it makes sense. It makes sense in Jewish history because every year the Jews gather, the Old Testament people of God would gather to remember what God did way back in Exodus 12, if you want to read it. If you'll remember the Passover, the first Passover, the plagues against Egypt, God put a judgment on the people of Egypt. And in this plague with the Passover, any of the people of God who put the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the doorposts of their house were passed over by the angel of death. And that's where we get that, that phrase, Passover. And so every year, the Jews, even today, get together and they have this remembrance of the Old Testament uh, story of Passover. But there's something else that's really important to remember about that Passover. It wasn't just something that looked back. It's not just something that remembered from before what happened. It's also an entire week of festivities that looks forward, looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. And this isn't something that we Christians are just making up on the spot, like post-Jesus coming. This is something that has a, a long tradition in the Old Testament and with the people of God before the New Testament. Let, let me prove this to you here in, in a few different ways. Uh, I don't want you to look there, but in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, there's this development of the idea of the Messiah's coming and that the Jews were expecting uh, God to send his son, the Messiah, to take care of their sins. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. That's a Jewish way of saying, let's, let's contend with me in relationship. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. They are, they are red like crimson now, but they will become like wool. God was promising forgiveness from sin in Isaiah, the first chapter. In Isaiah 9, in a, in a couple verses you probably recognize, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are not earthly titles. Those are kingly. Those are eternal titles. And the kingdom for a Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Mighty God has an eternal kingdom, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is this promise of an eternal kingdom, of an eternal king, way back in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 42, 1-9, which is the first of four servant songs, they called them, in the first one, in verse 1, 42, 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. This is God talking about the Messiah he would send. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Clearly, that kind of scripture in Isaiah is meant to prepare the Old Testament God, Old Testament people of God for the coming of the Messiah. The Jews at Passover were expecting Messiah. It was not just to look back, it was also to look forward. In this Passover feast, every year they'd have what we call a Seder. S-E-D-E-R, it's a Seder feast. And during that Seder meal, they were to eat it quickly, in haste, to remember what it was like to be ready to leave at a moment's notice when God would bring salvation and apply the judgment to the Egyptians. So they, they were a belt 
They had their sandals on. They had a staff ready. It was a symbol of readiness for God to come and to bring the kingdom. And so we Christians aren't just making up this idea. This is something that has a long tradition with it. In fact, at the end of, at the end of every Passover Seder meal, there was this prayer that they would say. And they would, they would say at the end of the meal, Lashana Chaba'ah Be'Yerushalayim, which means next year, in Jerusalem. It's a way of saying next year when we gather as the Old Testament people of God, maybe the Messiah will be here with us in Jerusalem. And so they had a hope of his coming. There was an expectation that he would be coming to bring the kingdom and to establish it and it would be here forever. And Matthew says they drew near. Because the kingdom is coming on Palm Sunday. The establishing of Jesus' kingdom is coming on this day. Matthew is saying to anyone who reads with this Jewish eye, he is saying, this is it. It's finally happening. The kingdom is coming with Jesus. But, but look at how he does it. Look at how he does it. Keep reading verse 1. It says they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. That's a mountain east of Jerusalem that overlooks the whole city. It's looking down the whole city, and it can see the whole temple mount there. So to prepare for his entrance to Jerusalem, Jesus sends his disciples, verse 2, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, This isn't an accident. This isn't an accident what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has easily walked hundreds of miles in his ministry. And there's no no place in the gospel that talks about him or his disciples riding into a city. They They were meant to walk to a city. And Matthew could have used peripateo. He could have used lots of ways to say they walked, they journeyed, they traveled by foot. He could have used a lot of ways in the Greek language to say it, but he didn't because there's a contrast. And Jesus does this on purpose. This is just not accidental. And, and even if he knew there's some, some miraculous way, he knew that there's a, a donkey and a, and a colt over there, and I'm going to send my disciples there. Even if he didn't set it up beforehand and he happened to know, he did it on purpose. And we're going to look at that in just a second here. It says the Lord needs them. He will send them at once. Verse 4. And then he comes in. He comes in on, these, uh, on, on this, this animal. We'll get to that in a second. Verse 5. Verse 4 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This was a, this was a crystal clear statement. This was a a very intentional public declaration by Jesus to say, I am the king. It's Passover and the kingdom starts today. My presence here starts this. That's why Matthew quotes Zechariah and Isaiah there in verses 4 and 5. So Matthew includes this to show that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing by riding on a donkey. And in Isaiah and Zechariah, just for the record, the passages that he grabbed are passages that are a context that that talk about the coming Messiah. So we, we Christians aren't just making this up after the fact. 
It's a part of the tradition in the first place. So they were expecting that. So Matthew understands Jesus here to be saying two things. Number one, I'm the king. And number two, I come to conquer peacefully. I'm the king and I come to conquer peacefully. Because he comes on a donkey. Comes on a donkey. Humbly. So the disciples, verse 6, they carried out Jesus' plan. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So that's the background. Starting at verse 8 and all the way through to the end, we see the responses of the people to what Jesus had done. This is when the passage starts to be applied to us. We'll talk about that a little bit later on here. But this is the point in the narrative, the point in the story, when you have to begin to reckon with the coming of the king. Verse 8. There are three basic responses. We'll note them as we go along. Look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This was sometimes done for pilgrims that entered a city to put the palm branches down for a, for a feast. It was also a sign of victory and, and national pride. So they spread their cloaks down, their coats, and they cut branches and put them on the ground, and then they waved them. The crowds, verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna, save us. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These first people responded as hopefully you've responded, which is humility. Lord, save me. That's the first response. Second response, verses 10 and 11 there. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The second group responded in sort of just a generic kind of apathetic kind of a way, just naming the information. Who is this? <laughs> well, it's, it's Jesus. It's that guy, that prophet from Nazareth who's been, you know, stirring up trouble all over the place. Stirring up trouble. They're just telling the facts of the matter. It's Jesus. Maybe they don't know exactly how to respond. Maybe they're not sure who he is yet. They, they may go the way of the Hosanna come save us humility people. They may go the way of the people we'll talk about next, which is those, which is those who should have known better. Those who should have known better. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple. And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. They had begun to, to manipulate what God had given them as a gift for their own purposes instead of for God's purposes. Don't miss that. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 13, he said to them, It is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He quotes there from the Psalms. My house shall be called a house of prayer. The original says, for all nations. You see, the people who should have understood it in the first place, 
The people who, who clearly should have known who he was when he came in, seen the signs, were the ones who were turning their lives and the temple sacrifices, their entire Jewish structure of belief, into something that's self-directed. Instead of something that was to be meant for, for all to know God. He said, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Do we make this, do we make this a den of robbers? When, when maybe it, it's not about selling something in these four walls. But maybe it's about co-opting what God's given us. With, with, with the lie from the pit of hell that it's for me. Maybe we turn this into a den of thieves. This body of believers into something that is a lie from the pit of hell. When it's member-driven... And not mission driven. Maybe what Jesus is doing as he's got the whip out is he's saying, What have you done with what I gave you? I, th- I, think, I think that's the spirit of what Jesus is doing. He's saying, You should have known better. Here I am starting the kingdom, and what have you done with what I've given you? The reason you exist in the first place. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I gave you this kind of instruction. That's why this exists. I think, I think that's the spirit of what Jesus is doing here. It's easy to say, well, we're not doing that because maybe we're not, you know, using this place as a place of commerce. Please, that's just the face of it. That's just the easy stuff to see. Maybe in your heart and in your life and in your family and your resources and everything you have, you are selling pigeons. Functioning like a money changer. Co-opting God's plans and purposes and resources for you. Maybe that's the spirit. I think that is. And woe to us. Woe to us is the message of Jesus to people like us who should know better. Who should know better? <clears throat> Here's something I can't reconcile. This is uh, tangential. This is tangential, but it's true. I can't reconcile. I cannot reconcile the presence of somebody who proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord. Who does not have people following after Christ as a result of their lives. Can't reconcile it. I'm sick and tired of us measuring ourselves by our ridiculous self-righteous structures that have nothing to do with lost people come to know Jesus. That's what becomes a den of robbers. 
Do you think you're good because you're in the seat? You think you're good because you tip here and there? You think you're good because you give 20%? You think you're good because your resources are used sometimes for somebody? If you're stopping short, if you're stopping short of it being about lost people, you don't get it. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. We are some of the most selfish, self-righteous, me-directed people I've ever met. When we, when we take this and the resources and my life and we make it about us, woe to us if that's what marks us. Den of Robbers explains some of our lives. Verse 14, <clears throat> Jesus comes into that setting, into that place, and he says, do what you're going to do, it's wrong, but here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look you in the face, I'm going to say, the blind and the lame, come to me, and I will heal you. That's the picture of somebody who gets it. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. In the middle of den of robbers, in the middle of chief priests and scribes questioning him in anger, verse 14 sits as an example of Jesus going, go ahead, tell me I'm crazy. I'm going to heal people. And those who know me and love me are going to heal people too. Verse 15, but when the chief priests... And the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They were angry. They were actually angry. They're the ones who should have known better. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? <laughs> and Jesus says, yep. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Three responses. Three responses to the question in verse 10. Who is this? Who is this who comes into this city riding on a donkey, humbly proclaiming the presence of the kingdom by which people can know him and have eternal life and, and their blindness can be healed and their sins can be made up for? Who is this that, that comes in and, and does that? Who is this? Verse 10, three responses in the passage. The first was humility. The first was humility. It's the only appropriate one in the passage. It's the only one that Matthew upholds and says, these are the ones who get it. Save me! Hosanna. They're the ones who get it. The second ones, they might eventually, they haven't yet. And I'll tell you what, our, our pews are... And churches in America are filled with people who are the second response of eh, relative apathy, factual information. Oh, that guy, he was Jesus, son of Nazareth. That son of the carpenter guy. Intellectual assent. 
that does not result in action, James, is spiritual fakery. The only appropriate response in this passage is Hosanna, save us. A lot of the crowds were like, eh, it's Jesus. <laughs> that prophet guy. And then the third response, the third response where Jesus goes into the temple are those who are, who are angry. It says they're indignant. <laughs> they're angry. And they're the ones that should have known better. They're the ones who said, do you, do you hear Jesus what they're claiming about you? So who is this? How does your life, not your mouth, that's part of the process, sure. Not your brain, that's part of the process, sure. But how does your life answer the question, who is this? That's what Jesus came to stir in us. Like that, that, that verse does. He came to trouble us with that question. Who is this? Let's pray.